Hey, good morning, Plum Creek. I want to welcome all of you here today, whether you're here in person or you're watching online, like my buddy Ed. Uh, it's great to have all of you with us. It's also great to have Marcella Farmer here today. She is an old college friend of mine, and she was over here playing viola with our worship team, which is very cool. Really appreciate the chance to uh, worship today and appreciate the team leading us. Now, in case you and I haven't had the chance to meet, my name is Doug, and I have the privilege of serving here as the senior minister at Plum Creek. And one of the things I love to do in this role is to study the Bible through the week and then come here and share what God is teaching me. And this morning, I want to give you a heads up. We're going to look at one of the most confusing passages in the whole Bible today. Uh, but I believe this is going to be fun. I also believe it will be encouraging. Uh, maybe a little challenging, too. And the truth is, the Bible can be all of these things. Encouraging and challenging and confusing and sometimes fun. And just to make sure we're on the same page here, if you are new to our church, Plum Creek is a place where we believe that the Bible is actually God's Word. God inspired human authors to write down what He wanted them to say now, if, if you want to know reasons why we believe that, we'd be happy to share those reasons with you. In fact, uh, there's an opportunity that I'm going to mention a little later where you could learn more about that. For now, though, I want to jump back into our series on 1 Peter um, because we've got a lot to cover here today. And if you've been with us for the series, you already know that 1 Peter is a letter and it was written to a group of Christians who lived in Asia Minor which is the area that we now call Turkey. Now, it was written by the Apostle Peter, the same guy who ran around with Jesus for three years. But the Christians he was writing to, they were going through a really hard time. Uh, they were suffering. They were being persecuted. And so God spoke through Peter to encourage these Christians and to remind them that when you follow Jesus, there is always reason for hope even in the midst of suffering. Now, this is the third week in our series, and we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 3 today. But to get started, I want to skip ahead and read just one verse from 1 Peter chapter 4. In verse 12, Peter says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Now, I, I read this verse up here a couple weeks ago. But I wanted to read it again today because for some of us, this statement, it sounds a little odd, maybe even disturbing. This week I was thinking back to the time many years ago when I first decided to follow Jesus. At that time, did I think that I was signing up to go through some fiery ordeal? Did, did I have an expectation that God would allow me to suffer? No, I, I wasn't thinking that. But here's Peter, and he says, guys, don't be surprised when you suffer. Uh, this is not strange at all. This is something that happens when you follow Jesus. Now, again, I want to be clear. Uh, God does not want to see us in pain. He loves us. But there are, are, there are times when he allows us to suffer for a greater good. And that can be difficult to understand but God never wastes a hurt, and He can always bring good out of our pain. 
And I wanted to start here because it's very important for us to set realistic expectations. And let's take just a moment to set some of those expectations. I want to give you just a few things that God does not promise when you become a follower of Jesus. First, God does not promise that you will always have good physical health in this lifetime. Now, it's definitely a good thing to pray and ask God for help. He's a good God and He wants good things for us. And there are many times when He will answer those prayers and give that healing. However, Hebrews chapter 9 says, all of us have an appointment with death. And it's hard to keep that, point, that appointment if your good health never goes away. So that's number one. Another thing that God has not promised is financial wealth in this lifetime. And some people will disagree with me here, and they'll point to certain verses or passages that, that tell us about God's desire to bless you. And I'm not arguing that point. Uh, yes, Scripture does teach that when you handle, God, handle money God's way, He will bless you, and He will meet your needs. At the same time, though, we have to consider the many passages in the Bible where people are both blessed and poor. Look at what the Apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter 4. He said, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. You know, Paul was one of the most committed followers of Jesus you could ever find, but there were plenty of times where he was poor and blessed at the same time. And Paul not only experienced financial hardship, he also experienced rejection and persecution. Paul's life reminds us that God never promised social acceptance or popularity. He, he didn't promise religious freedom either. Sure, it's great when we have these things, but let's not feel like they're guaranteed or that we're entitled to them. Now, some people might hear these things and say, wow, is there a positive side to this? Are there some good things that God has promised? And the answer, of course, is yes. God has promised many, many great things for a person who follows Jesus. And I won't give you the long list, but I'll give you just a few examples. First, when you give your life to Jesus, you can expect a tenacious joy, even while you suffer. And this doesn't mean you're happy all the time. This doesn't mean you never get sad or even depressed. It just means that underneath it all, there is a joy that doesn't depend on your circumstances. Another promise is directly from Jesus. He promises an abundant life. He said, for anyone who follows me, I have come to, to give you life, to give you life to the full. We also have a promise of ultimate victory. This life may knock us down, but we're never knocked out, not completely. We are headed for victory. We have a promise that we will overcome, overcome sin and even death itself. I'll give you just one more promise, and it's one that we see here in 1 Peter. Followers of Jesus are promised a living hope. It's a rock-solid belief that no matter what happens in this world, we will get to a place where all of our trials and tribulations are long forgotten. And this living hope 
It can carry you through the darkest days in your life. And that's why Peter writes this letter. He knows these Christians will need this hope because this persecution, it's not going to let up anytime soon. So Peter says, dear friends, I want you to know persecution is not only possible, you should expect it. And the truth is, that message is all over the Bible. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now, I have never seen this verse framed and hanging up in somebody's wall, and I don't expect to see that. But you know, Jesus said the same thing. He, he said to his disciples, remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master, and if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. So this is a big theme throughout Scripture, and it's, it's a, an especially prominent theme in 1 Peter. And we're going to have several action steps from the chapter we'll look at today, and I'll go ahead and give you the first one. Here it is, action step number one. Be grateful for the freedom to worship Jesus. And don't take that freedom for granted. The United States is not a perfect country by any means, but we are extremely blessed with the freedoms that we have. Now, the situation may change in the future, but as of right now, it's extremely rare for someone to go through major persecution for following Jesus here in the U.S. Uh, most of us don't even see minor league persecution. Some of us don't even make it to the little leagues. And when that's the norm, it's very easy to take our freedom for granted. But when we need to grow in gratitude, it's not very difficult to do that. We can just look at other Christians who have suffered for their faith. Last week I talked about the persecutions under Nero, who was the Roman emperor at the time when 1 Peter was written. Nero and some of the emperors who came later, uh, they, they were guilty of terrible atrocities against Christians. But you know, these, these things didn't just happen in the past. They're happening right now in other parts of the world today. In many places, you put your life on the line just by admitting that you're a Christian. So let's be grateful. Let's not take our freedom for granted. And now, after all of that, let's jump into 1 Peter chapter 3. And like I told you, we're going to get into some crazy stuff. And I won't read every verse in this chapter once again. Uh, we're going to read verses 13 through 22. So follow along with me, either in your Bible or up on the screen. Peter says in verse 13, Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? Now, this is not the really confusing part of this passage, but verse 13 does make you scratch your head a little. Imagine that you're one of those Christians in Asia Minor. You get this letter from Peter, and he says, who's going to harm you if you're out there eager to do good? You might want to say, um, how about Nero, <laughs> the emperor? How about all these Christians? How about all these neighbors around us who just hate Christians? Remember, the people in these churches, they were already suffering. But the reality is, this, this is not a strange question at all. It's, it's rhetorical. It's a lot like a question that Paul asked in the book of Romans. 
Paul said, if God is for us, who can be against us? So what, what does that mean? Well, in one sense, that doesn't seem right because God can be for you and you can still have a bunch of enemies. But in another sense, you're like, sure, yeah, I, I know these people are against me, but what can they do? They can't really do anything that is permanent, any kind of damage that, that lasts because God is on my side. I'm on the winning team. So that's similar to the point that Peter is making here. He's saying, yes, people in this world may persecute you, but no one in this world can do you lasting harm. Uh, they can't separate you from God. Uh, they can't take away your inheritance in Christ. So all of that makes sense. But then Peter takes things to another level. Look at verse 14. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. So Peter says, when you are mistreated for doing the right thing, that's actually a blessing. And we've got to ask why. Uh, why should we think of suffering as a blessing? How does that make sense? Well, this is interesting. Remember, Peter spent three years with Jesus. And he heard Jesus preach and teach probably hundreds of times. And here in verse 14, Peter is quoting and, and paraphrasing Jesus. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said to his disciples, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. So now we have to ask Jesus that same question, right? How in the world, Jesus, is it a blessing to be persecuted? Well, he answers that question in the very next verse. He says, Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So you got two reasons to rejoice when you suffer for Christ. First, you're, you're a member of an exclusive club. And what club is that? Well, it's the prophets and everyone else who demonstrated their love for God by suffering for Him. So that's one blessing, and another blessing has to do with that living hope. For followers of Jesus, this world is not your home. You're, you're on a journey to get to your true home, and yeah, the, the trip can be pretty rough sometimes, but when you arrive at your destination, it's going to be so worth it. And that brings us to our second action step for today. Be ready to suffer and be ready to consider it a blessing. And yeah, that's tough. Uh, we're going to need God's help with this one. But the more we grow in our love for Christ, the easier this becomes. So let's keep reading. In verse 15, Peter says, But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord, and always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Now, the assumption here is that followers of Jesus will live in a way that stands out. We, we talked about this last week. God calls Christians to live as a light in a dark world. And when we live like that, people will notice. 
And when people notice, we want to point them to Jesus in whatever way we can. And I love the spirit of these instructions here. Peter doesn't tell us to go out and argue with people. He just says, live that different kind of life. Be the light and then be ready to have a conversation. Maybe that conversation is with a skeptic, someone who says, why why do you believe all that stuff? Or maybe the conversation is with someone who sees you suffering and they say, man, after everything you've been through, how do you still have a positive attitude? Or, or maybe it's somebody seeing you love others in a radical way, and then that person comes to you and says, why do you do these things that you do? And when you get those questions, you want to be ready to respond. And listen, being ready doesn't mean you need to have the whole Bible memorized. Being ready doesn't mean you know all the scientific arguments that prove why Christianity is true. It just means that you know your reasons for why you believe. And I'll tell you what doesn't work. It doesn't work to say, well, I grew up in a Christian home. My parents told me that the Bible is true, and I just never questioned it. That's not very compelling, is it? What is compelling is when you can describe the difference that Jesus has made in your life. What is compelling is when you can describe and explain your reasons for why you believe. And that brings me to the opportunity I mentioned earlier. If you need a deeper understanding of what Christians believe and why they believe it, I want to invite you to the Foundations class that's happening next month, every Sunday morning in August at 9.30 over in the Life Center. And all you have to do is show up, and this class will help you be prepared for these conversations that I'm talking about. And by the way, this is action step number three. Be ready to give reasons for the hope that you have in Jesus. Okay, it's finally time. We have arrived at the really confusing part of this passage. So let's go back and read, starting at verse 17. It says, For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the Spirit. Okay, so far, so good. What's Peter saying here? He says, you know, Jesus lived a perfect life. He did absolutely nothing wrong, yet he still suffered an excruciating death on the cross. So once again, when you suffer for doing good, you're in good company. But look at that last sentence here. Jesus was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Hold that thought and we'll read on. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. And there it is. Jesus went and preached to disobedient spirits who have been in some kind of spiritual prison for thousands of years, ever since the time of Noah. What in the world is going on here? Well, let's take a minute to think about this. First, I want to give you a quote from a famous Bible scholar named Martin Luther. He was one of the great leaders of the Protestant Reformation. And many people look to Luther as a brilliant theologian. But here's what he said about these verses. He said, 
This is a strange text, and certainly a more obscure passage than any other in the New Testament, and I still do not know for sure what the apostle means. And I'm with Martin Luther here. Uh, I don't want to disappoint you, uh, but I don't have a clear black and white explanation for this text. But here's what I can do. Uh, I can give you two of the common interpretations, uh, opinions, as to what this might be about. First, Some commentators think that Jesus went to Hades, the place of the dead, and he preached a sermon to these people who were disobedient back in Noah's day. These these people were in some intermediate state between death and the final judgment. Now, if that's the case, what was Jesus preaching about? Well, some say that Jesus was making a declaration. He was announcing his victory over sin and death. But others say it was more than that. They say that Jesus was preaching the gospel to these imprisoned souls, and he was basically giving them another chance to turn to God. And according to this argument, these people deserved that chance because they lived and died before the time of Jesus. Now, there are many who object to that view because, in general, the Bible doesn't tell us that God gives people another chance after death. A second interpretation is that these imprisoned spirits are actually fallen angels or demons. And this would be another scenario where Jesus is declaring victory over sin and death. He's making it very clear that he is superior to all other powers. And actually, it is true Uh, In other parts of Scripture, we we see that there are fallen angels who are in chains in a place of deep darkness, and, and they're just waiting for the judgment day when God will deal with them once and for all. But obviously, we're, we're getting into territory that is beyond our pay grade. Uh, God knows what is going on here, but it's likely that we won't sort this out, at least in this lifetime. So in the end, I like what one commentator said. He said, here's one thing I'm sure of. Jesus went somewhere and preached something to certain spirits in some prison. And I feel good about that. But before we move on, I do want to say, be careful with a passage like this one. What we don't want to do is focus on some obscure passage and then neglect the many clear things that God tells us in Scripture. You know, it's great to dig into sections of the Bible that we don't understand. And in fact, I I believe in some cases that's exactly what God wants. Because when you read a passage that leaves you confused or bewildered or even offended, that, that can cause you to dig deeper into God's Word. And sometimes you will get your questions answered. Other times, though, the, the mystery remains a mystery. But at the end of the day, our focus should be on the clear truths and clear commands that we find in the Bible. And the funny thing is, Peter never intended to dwell on this episode with the imprisoned spirits. He mentions Noah to make a totally different point. Let's go back and we'll read verse 19 again, but this time we'll keep going. Peter says, After being made alive... Jesus went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, the ark, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. 
And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. So we go from a confusing section straight into a controversial section. Uh, Bible scholars and commentators have argued about this text for a long time. Uh, If you ask me, though, this one is easier to sort out. First, let's think about the word saved or saves. What what does Peter mean with that word? Well, this isn't very complicated. Uh, you got two scenarios here. Number one, Noah and his family were saved from drowning in the great flood. Uh, And then number two, Christians who received this letter from Peter, they were being saved from an eternal death that would have come because of their sin. And, and these Christians of Asia Minor are really like all followers of Jesus. All of us have sinned. All of us have broken God's laws. We've disobeyed His commands. And our sin separated us from God. Our sin earned us the penalty of eternal death in hell. But Jesus went to the cross and He paid that penalty. And He made it possible for us to be in a restored relationship with God forever. And that's what it means to be saved. But how is that salvation possible? Well, in the case of Noah and his family, they climbed into the ark. But with followers of Jesus, Peter brings up this event of baptism. And here's where some commentators get skittish. They don't like Peter's terminology here, uh, specifically that phrase, baptism saves you. Well, there's actually nothing wrong with that phrase, but we do need to understand what Peter is and is not saying here. First, let's talk about what Peter doesn't mean. Uh, The word baptism means to be immersed in water, and Peter is not saying that this outward act of baptism is enough to save you. Baptism doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. And how does he do that? Well, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not by works so that no one can boast. So salvation comes by grace. It's a gift that we don't deserve. Salvation also comes through faith. And faith is not just believing in Jesus. It's putting your trust in him. It's putting your life in his hands. And that means if you're not really putting your faith in Jesus, if you're not really trusting him, being baptized just means you got wet. Uh, The water itself is not magic. However, we also can't minimize the significance of baptism. It's hugely significant. In Matthew 28, what did Jesus say to his disciples? He gave them a command. He said, go and make new disciples and baptize them. Then in Acts chapter 2, Peter got up and he preached the first sermon in the history of the church. The crowd realized that they were sinners in need of a Savior. And they looked at Peter and the other apostles and they said, brothers, what shall we do? And then Peter gave these instructions. He said, repent and be baptized. And after Peter said that, 3,000 people got baptized. The fact is, this is the clear pattern and the clear model in Scripture. When someone decides to follow Jesus, they get baptized. Uh, They die to their old sinful life, just like Jesus died on the cross. 
They're buried in water, just like Jesus was buried in the tomb. And they raise up out of the water, just like Jesus rose out of the tomb, and he was alive again. So this is the moment that marks new life in Christ. To put this another way, let's compare baptism to a wedding. And this is not some random comparison. This metaphor is in the New Testament. Jesus is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. But let's think about it this way. Imagine there is a couple that is engaged and the man goes to his fiancée. They're planning to be married and he says, babe, I I do want to get married, but I don't want to say those vows. Yeah, I do want to get married, but I don't want to give you that ring. And please don't make me do that kiss at the end of the ceremony. That's just embarrassing. Now, if the guy starts talking like this, the the woman's going to have second thoughts, right? And why? Well, if you truly love this person that that you say you want to marry, if you're truly committing your life to this person, you will be happy to do all of those things. I read one commentator who said, Any view of baptism which finds it a rather embarrassing ceremonial extra, irrelevant to Christian salvation, is not doing justice to New Testament teaching. So where am I going with this? Well, this is action step number four. Be sure that you have this living hope, because not everyone has that hope. Back in the days of Noah, only eight people were saved. Everyone else perished in the flood. And the same is true today. If you've never given your life to Jesus, you are a sinner who needs to be saved. But here's the good news. This living hope is available to everyone, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done. Jesus offers the gift of salvation. So respond to that offer in all the ways that he told us to respond. You can be saved by grace through faith. And when you put your faith in Jesus, the Bible gives us several steps to take where you demonstrate that faith. First, you believe in Christ as your Lord and Savior. Next, you confess your faith. You declare that Jesus is your Lord and your master and the leader of your life. You also repent of your sins. You do a 180 and you leave your old sinful life behind. And finally, you are baptized by immersion. And from that point on, you live a new life with a living hope. And like I said earlier, the power of baptism is not in the water itself. The power behind baptism is the resurrection of Jesus. And that's the very end of our passage today. 1 Peter 3.21 This baptism it saves you by the resurrection of jesus christ who has gone into heaven and is at god's right hand with angels authorities and powers in submission to him so if you're a follower of jesus this is who you have on your side he is the 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 risen lord that the living king all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him So if Jesus is for you, who can be against you? No one can harm you in in any way that makes a difference in the long run. And no season of suffering can separate you from him or take away your joy. You have this living hope. And that's our last action step. Let this living hope carry you all the way to eternity. Let's pray.
Father, I thank you so much for this hope. We do have some dark days in this life, and we need you. Every hour, we need you. So Lord, I I pray for those of us who have found this hope, I, I pray that you will help us to go out and tell your story and live your story and lead others to you. You want everyone to find this salvation. And if there's someone here that needs to find that today, I pray that they will respond to your offer, to this gift. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.